It's Tuesday the 14th of January. I'm Jackie Oatley and this is The Athletic Transfer Daily. 17 days remaining in this transfer window and fans and managers alike are increasingly anxious about their club's dealings. So we here on The Transfer Daily are here to help inform you as to what's brewing behind the scenes. Yesterday, if you were listening, Tim Spears brought us some rather excellent insight into the recruitment process at Wolves, so do have a listen back to that if you can. And today we have the equally well-connected George Culkin on the show to provide inside information on transfer activity in the northeast. We'll have updates coming up, including Rafa Honigstein on the clubs chasing the Salzburg forward Huang, Phil Hay on where former Leeds man Jack Clark may be heading, and we'll also hear from Richard Sutcliffe on the mysterious lack of offers for Hull superstar Jared Bowen. Sam Lee will bring us news on reports of Mikel Arteta taking John Stones from his former club, which is a very interesting prospect. And we'll have more on the future of the Chelsea starlet Connor Gallagher, who's on loan at Charlton. But first, let's bring in George Culkin. How are you, sir? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Well, thanks. Now, would you please sum up the the general vibe about transfers and and how fans and people are feeling about their clubs in the North East? Well, I'd say it's tense, but then it's always pretty tense um, up here um, for a wide variety of reasons. But um, yeah, I mean, there's not been a sort of huge amount of activity so far, certainly nothing at Newcastle. Their situation is interesting because of the number of injuries they've had. They did have a clear... A clear plan at the start of the window, which was the priority was an attacking midfielder and then probably a striker on loan. Um, But because of the sort of huge numbers of injuries they've had, it's sort of thrown everything up in the air. They're talking in public about not panicking, about not making decisions um, that would sort of negatively affect the squad somewhere down the line. But they do have decisions to make. There will be a meeting this week, a rare meeting between Steve Bruce and the owner Mike Ashley, where they might be able to thrash some of those things out. It feels to me slightly remarkable that they've got to the window and they haven't done that yet. Um, And then elsewhere, Sunderland have attempted to sort of switch their squad around a bit. They've had a big upturn in form under Phil Parkinson, which is very welcome. They brought in Kyle Lafferty. And then at Middlesbrough, it's been relatively quiet. They've brought in a couple of young players on loan from Man City and Metcher and Patrick Roberts, who've already come into the team. They did their homework very early. They did. They got that sorted very early. And it'll be interesting there to see what happens in the way of outgoings because uh, the goalkeeper Darren Randolph there's long-standing move to West Ham United which still hasn't been resolved I think that's over a medical and you know then you then you can start asking questions about other high-profile members of their squad people like Britta Sombolonga who are on who cost a lot of money and are on big wages so in a season of transition for them and financial recalibration they have some they have some decisions to make too. Okay, we'll come on to some of those issues in just a minute. But very much enjoyed your piece, which I think came out today, did I? I only read it today, on the cauldron of stress, really, for those in the game caused by this blessed transfer window. Um, It really was fascinating because you spoke to a Premier League director, an EFL director and an agent. We didn't need them to be named because if they were, then they wouldn't have told you as much interesting stuff as they did. So tell us a little bit more about what you discovered and some of the anecdotes from that piece. Yeah, so so the the idea. I mean, we've we're doing a sort of series of January transfer window pieces about you know trying to sort of explain um, what happens behind the scenes during January, and uh, I think it's it's 
it amused me that someone I you know I've often described myself as a chronicler of misery because I write about northeast football. So I got I got asked to do the one about what happens when things go wrong. Um, so not yeah, I think slightly stereotypically there, but uh, of course I have a lot of examples though, isn't of that. It? You're the go-to man for misery. I mean, I am the the Pope of Mope. <laughs> They, I have, I have plenty of examples on my on my doorstep of uh, of what happens go, uh, you know, of what happens when things go wrong in January, and it was sort of quite funny. The people who I spoke to, I think, quite enjoyed the chance to get stuff off their chest in a sort of anonymous uh, setting. And um, one of them said, "This is like confession." Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, I mean, there are all sorts of pressures, and there are all sorts of sort of forces at work. I mean. Those things exist in football all the time. But you get to January, you're halfway through a season, you might have, you know, pressure from fans to 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 buy players for whatever reason, either because you're at the top of the league or, you know, at the bottom. Um, you might have pressure from your manager, you have clearly have pressures from agent, you have pressures from the players themselves, and it's that sort of time when it's stick or twist. Um, you know, do you make that last push? do you make a signing to try and shore up your position? And I suppose the way the game has developed now, particularly, I suppose particularly in the Premier League and particularly in the Championship, where there is so much pressure on either getting up or staying up, that is where the big, the biggest decisions get made and it's where the biggest pitfalls lie because you know that um, if you make a wrong decision in January, in fact, both of the executives I, I, I spoke to if things go really wrong, then you get relegated, or you can make a decision which leaves you financially badly lumbered, and that you then pay for in the seasons to come. And if you do that too many times, you you know you can upset the balance in your squad as well as wasting a lot of money. And you know there are all sorts of these these things at work. I mean, it's fascinating. It's 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 never a pleasant window to work in as a journalist I don't think because you're sort of constantly constantly waiting for the phone to go or constantly worried that there's something happening but um, I think it's pretty stressful for the people involved at the clubs. Well I mean I hugely enjoyed the uh, Sunderland Till I Die documentary I think as anybody did I'm a complete neutral and I was absolutely gripped I remember taking my laptop around the house with my airpods in and putting the washing away because I couldn't put my laptop down I had loads of stuff yeah. to do and, and prep to do but I couldn't couldn't stop watching it and and you know, seeing the chief executive and the pressure he was under, and the various managers coming in, and the just the reality of it all, and and of course, there's a situation with Jack Rodwell, who they were lumbered with for years on on this ridiculous contract. I mean, first of all, just explain how that Rodwell situation came about, if you can. Yeah, Rodwell wasn't a January signing; he was a summer signing, and he arrived at a time when Sunderland felt like a very different place. I remember speaking to Lee Congerton, who was the sporting director at the time, and he talked about signing a future England captain, and he came with a came with a very, you know, very high reputation. Just didn't work, and sometimes transfers don't. And that was a an interesting thing because not only because of that being a very different time for Sunderland and what they were looking to do at that point because they were looking to kick on, but also what they had to do. So for him and for other signings that arrived towards their latter um, latter spell in the Premier League, they they weren't able to do relegation clauses in contracts because players looked at. Sunderland and where they'd been in the table and only narrowly surviving and so the chance of them going down was quite high and so 
they had club they had the club over a barrel. Now that's that is the club's fault because it had been mismanaged for a long time. And so clubs do sort of betray their own principles. So when Sunderland came up into the Premier League under Roy Keane, there was a very strong vibe that they would only ever accept players who would agree to do relegation con- uh, clauses in their contracts. But that gets whittled away over time as clubs are chasing bad decisions. And that happened a lot at Sunderland. And so when it did go wrong and when they did go down, they were left with players on big salaries that they couldn't get rid of and who wouldn't leave. And you're, you know, you're, you're then paying for those decisions. And when they're on top of decisions, such as changing your manager or head coach uh, all the time, you're then paying off those contracts. You're left with this extraordinary churn in the dressing room and in the dugout. And each time a new manager comes in and makes the same mistakes that the old one did, brings in their own players, brings in their own staff, and you're, you know, no people's heads are spinning so much that they've got no idea what they're doing. And so it's not just about one individual deal. I mean, one that I mentioned in the piece is Danny Graham, who arrived under Martin O'Neill, and they paid five million for him, and nobody thought he was worth five million. And in the end, that season, Sunderland stayed up, but I think he only scored one goal for Sunderland in three years. He actually went off on loan uh, to other places and then ended up leaving leaving for nothing when he left Sunderland. And so, you know, that's that, that's one area where things can go wrong. In the season they did go down, they kept Jermaine Defoe in the January. And in some respects, that was a no-brainer because he was... Um, he was their leading scorer, but they rejected a six million quid offer from West Ham. He stays, they go down, and Defoe leaves for nothing at the end of that season because they have to cut costs. So, you know, it's not just about buying people, it's also sometimes about knowing when to sell. And it's sort of like a three dimensional jigsaw, and you can, you're never exactly sure how things are going to play out. How much of it do you think is down to luck, and how much of it do you think is down to? simply good management? Well, I mean, I think, you know, all clubs would like to think they have a strategy, but it's much easier to implement that strategy in the summer. So as as the EFL director put it to me, if you think about it, all the good players are already playing. So prizing them away from other clubs is very difficult or very expensive. So if you don't go for those players, you're left with kids usually, or as he put it, you're left with sort of mercenaries, people who will be happy to move for a little bit more money or journeymen and then what does that do to the makeup of your squad and everybody's looking at strikers because it's strikers that keep you up there are all those things that you have to sort of take into account but you can't always fathom what's going to happen six months down the line a season down the line two seasons down the line and there has been a sense of mania so people take people take these decisions because the the sum that they have in their head is you know, if again, if you look at the Danny Graham scenario, fine. Staying up in the Premier League is, you know, you're you're guaranteed 100 million, 120 million, whatever it is. That might be what your turnover is. If you go to the down to the Championship, that income is decimated. So you gamble on five million. But if you gamble on five million one season, and then the next season, and then the next window, you're suddenly left with a inferior squad on very high wages, which you can't do very much about, and then you're struggling. It's financial jeopardy, as, 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 as one of them put it, and that seems to be the biggest thing, that it's a, it's a window where you jettison very often your long-term 
your long-term principles for a short-term fix. You do hear managers sometimes use the expression, we need bodies through the door. And I always watch that and think, how much due diligence are you doing on these bodies coming through the door? Because it's okay if it's a, a loan for the next five months or something, but if you're signing one of these bodies through the door on decent wages and a three-year contract and they haven't got the character, frankly, to be bothered to put in the work once you sign them on that contract, then you're lumbered with these characters, aren't you? Sometimes due diligence just doesn't work. I mean, so you look at Newcastle uh, this past summer and... I mean, I'm still trying to get my head around this, but they pay £40 million for Gillington, which in Newcastle terms is extraordinary, you know, bearing in mind where their transfer record was beforehand. And it was a deal that they tried to sort of foist onto Benitez last season, last February, in fact, and he refused, thinking it wasn't value for money and he might not have been there anyway, so why would he greenlight it? But they were determined to do it. They watched him 24 times, I was told, Um and it's been very difficult this season to see what the strategy was behind his signing. He isn't a direct replacement for Salomon Rondon, who was at Newcastle on loan last season. And he doesn't fit into the way that the team were comfortable playing under Rafa or indeed under Steve Bruce now. And so you then look at this window and I think you would like to think that the strategy that they would have in the back of their head is, OK, well, we can't write off £40 million we have to bear with him, so we have to find a way to make this work. We have to find a way to make that investment work. And so, you would again, you would like to think that they're thinking of who they could bring in that somehow links the team up better, that brings balance to the team, and gets the best out of a player that we've not seen the best out of. Um, but they also, you know, they also then have in the back of their mind that, okay, if we're not scoring goals, if we're right at the bottom of the list of of goal scoring this season that means trouble is coming somewhere down the line do they bring in a striker to provide a bit of competition and hopefully to score some goals in which case are they compromising are they lowering the worth of Jalinton by doing that are they leaving themselves exposed financially and then of course what do they do about all the injuries that they've had it's a it's a window that tests clubs in a way that summer doesn't because they have all that time to think about summer and they have you know that they're, they're standing from a from a sort of healthy position whereas in January you can get through Christmas and suddenly be left with 10 injuries and be in the bottom third of the table thinking if we don't spend now then we're in trouble. It's really interesting the Jolinton one because it's not as though he scored 25 goals last season he scored seven in the league in 29 games so that is an interesting one as to how much they actually spent there but I mean talking about Newcastle you say it's interesting they're only just having a summit now this week Steve Bruce and Mike Ashley what is the relationship there like? So I mean I think they got on fine in the summer when they when they met but this is only the second time they've got together and um, the day-to-day dealings are as they as they have been for a while now between the manager and Lee Charnley, the managing director, and that relationship is fine. It's also, I'm not saying it's irrelevant because that is the day-to-day running of the club, but in spite of him denying it, Mike Ashley is still responsible for the for the big decisions and is still consulted for the big decisions, and that includes recruitment. And so that relationship is is important, but it's important in a way that's 
very difficult to quantify and very difficult to predict because he's unpredictable. And because Newcastle is actually such a small part of his business empire um, that he, he doesn't give it its full attention. And so, you know, there was that extraordinary thing last last season about Jalinton and him offering to pay £20 million from his own money towards it. Um, so it wouldn't all be coming out of Benitez's budget. Um, and that was a level of engagement that we haven't seen for a long time. And then at the same time, he's saying, you know, he doesn't really want to be at the club. The club is still up for sale. And it's very difficult. I think it's very difficult for the club to to know what to do and how to handle that and how to move forward and how to progress. And at the same time, it's an institution that sort of stripped back to its bare bones. And so it's never going to be this thriving institution that is pushing for sporting glory because that's not the way it's set up. So, you know, it's very difficult. If, if there's a good relationship between Steve Bruce and Mike Ashley, then on the one hand, people should be pleased about that because there's more chance of the club moving in a positive direction. But at the same time, I think we've seen over the last 13 years that these things don't last and that Ashley will disappear again. A couple of quick lines now, if you wouldn't mind. You touched on Sunderland, you talked about them before, but they seem to be turning things around there under Phil Parkinson. Six unbeaten now in League One after a horrible run of form. And what about Stuart Donald, the owner? I've read a lot of stuff. Um, positive, negative, should we say, about him and his motives. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, I think he 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 came into the club to try and turn it around and then I think probably to sell it. I think that was the idea. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, some very important stuff happened last season that all those things about reconnecting and reconnecting the club to its fan base that needed to happen and it did it's fascinating the way they did that because they sort of went through fans groups and they went through podcasts and then gradually over the intervening time that relationship has soured so much so that kind of Sunderland podcasts are now refusing to have him on and stuff like that which is quite a it's a fascinating dynamic and I mean, the other fascinating thing, I think, is that, uh, and I've written quite a lot about this this season, is that last year, it was a good season. I mean, it was a good season right until the last kick. You could almost argue they should probably have gone up automatically, but it was a good season right until the last kick because they were winning. They were a winning team for the first time for, uh, for years and years. They were going to different places, going to different clubs. Fans enjoyed it. They enjoyed that experience. They were on loan effectively in League One for a season but when that kick goes the other way in the playoff final and they're condemned to League One for a second season it stops being fun and it becomes a failure so you can have Jack Ross was something like statistically was their most successful manager for 50 years barring one other who had a lot less games and statistically he was also their worst manager ever because of the league position they finished in. And that sort of relationship between success and failure, I know it's the case for a lot of teams, go up, stay up, you know, win something, don't win something, but it's been particularly stark for Sunderland. And so they've been under pressure from the moment they lose the playoff final. And they and they become a League One they become a League One club and they're still they're still wrestling with that with that identity, I think. Any signs of new ownership? Because he put the club up for sale a week ago. Yeah, I mean, effective, effectively, it's been up for sale for a, for a while. Uh, I interviewed Jack Ross not long after he left the club, and he, he basically said that there were, quote-unquote, new owners in the building over the summer 
who were asking, you know, he was talking to about signings and stuff like that, and they were literally there in the training ground, and then the next day they disappeared, and he was back to dealing with Stuart Donald again. So that's not a new thing. As Donald has said, they're in talks with various uh, with various groups. I don't think there's anything imminent on that, but yeah, there's still a lot of still a lot of uncertainty around the club. At least things are going better on the pitch, as they are for Jonathan Woodgate at Middlesbrough. Now he has a very uh, stable and loyal owner, come chairman in Steve Gibson, one that I think a lot of managers would love to play under, wouldn't they? And um, six unbeaten after a, a terrible run, very similar to Sunderland. What's he doing right there now? It's a similar story, really. I mean, I've, again, I've done a lot of stuff at Middlesbrough this season. It's kind of right from the start, and I did a kind of big behind-the-scenes piece at the start of the season where I spent time with Gibson and with Woodgate on the training pitch and then various others behind the scenes. And the thing that was interesting there was that there was a, a real feeling of positivity. So they've had a financial recalibration. They've had, you know, they can't rely on Premier League money anymore, um, and they can't rely on making big moves in the transfer market so they've doubled down back to their academy which has been absolutely brilliant over the years there's been this focus on youth there's been focus on a more front foot style of play as everyone calls it these days and they had a young manager from the town the the, the phrase that was used within the club was this golden thread now that brought a lot of positivity but they'd also had a couple of years of Tony Pulis and when any manager comes in, it can be quite difficult to implement a, a different style of play. There were, the you know, there've been hiccups with that, but that feeling of positivity has never left. Now all clubs tend to say that, but I've spoken to enough people there, whether it's in the boardroom or or just around the place, players, staff. That sort of buzz of positivity has been maintained, and Woodgate has has kept that. At the same time, Steve Gibson was incredibly consistent that he was sticking with Woodgate. It is about sort of reinventing the club and and sort of re-establishing an identity which I think had been lost um, over the last few years but good to see and yeah Woodgate Woodgate's done done well then he's a he's a good fella. Yeah good to see some stability there at that club as well. Well George mentioned a few articles that he's written in recent times do go to theathletic.co.uk and uh, you can track down some of those um, articles if you're on the app then you can search for uh, authors as well and you could just spend all day reading George's articles if you like to, which is what I did this morning, reading your rather good Kevin Phillips one. It's a very long read, so it's worth getting a brew on at the same time. But certainly enjoyed the swearing, which you don't tend to get in, in newspapers. I think you enjoy probably putting the swearing in these days, don't you, George? That's why I joined The Athletic. <laughs> Not an asterisk to be seen. Now, stay there, George, if you wouldn't mind, please. We're going to get a roundup now from elsewhere in the country, some of our athletic correspondents, starting with Rafa Honigstein. Huang Hee Chan of Red Bull Salzburg has been in hot demand by a variety of Premier League clubs, including Brighton and Wolves. Everton and Leicester are also monitoring the situation, but a deal for the South Korean international might be more likely in the summer. Have a look at my article in The Athletic for more details. Liam Toomey here. No major incomings to report at Chelsea just yet, but there could be another fairly interesting outgoing. I think Conor Gallagher is fast becoming one of the most in-demand players of this January window. Chelsea have recalled him from his loan at Charlton Athletic, where he did really, really well in the first half of the season. And he kind of has his pick of, of destinations 
um, at the top end of the championship and, and, and there's some Premier League interest as well. I've been told that West Brom, current championship leaders and, and Swansea who are in the midst of the, the playoff chase are pushing hardest for him. Uh, Swansea, of course, also took Mark Gurhey, the Chelsea defender, on loan for the rest of the season a few days ago with the understanding that if all parties are happy, that agreement would stretch on to next season. Now, I think uh, any Gallagher loan would probably be along similar lines, but they, they have to get him first and, and there's, there's, there's a fair bit of competition. Hi Jackie, it's Adam Leventhal here. Just an update from Watford for you. The uh, the deal to bring Ignacio Pasetto to Watford from Udinese is uh, following the timetable that I outlined in the article that I wrote on Sunday. Uh, some insight into who he is and where he fits in is in that. Here's Richard Sutcliffe now on the very latest with Hull City's Jared Bowen. Jared Bowen has proved himself to be among the most reliable goal scorers in the Championship. 52 goals in a little over two and a half years is better than anyone else in the second tier and yet still no one in the Premier League is willing to take a punt on him. Hull City have had no bids to buy Bowen either in this window or the last. For more details you can check out my piece today for The Athletic. Well George that is fascinating isn't it and it seems that clubs are being put off by the fee which uh, Richard said, is north of £20 million. I mean, the guy's only just turned 23. He scored 52 league goals and 122 appearances for Hull, having signed from Hereford United. Are you surprised they haven't taken a punt on him, bearing in mind he's you know a young English lad, which has value? Yeah, very surprised. I know that Tottenham have looked at him in previous seasons. He joined Hull when Steve Bruce was manager there, albeit as a, as a youngster. And I know that Steve is, is still very, very keen on him and um, has certainly been tracking him since he's been at Newcastle. There is a feeling that it's too expensive and and too expensive this month, so I don't think Newcastle will be following that up, but um, I am surprised. I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if he's in demand this summer, though. Let's hear now from Sam Lee, our Manchester City correspondent, on some intriguing news about John Stones. The John Stones to Arsenal rumour is an interesting one, uh, I've got a bit of a personal theory, and I've got to stress it's a personal theory and not based on any information that I've heard, that I wouldn't be too surprised if City looked to cash in on him in the summer. But on the other hand, you know, he is English. They are going to need at least two, maybe, centre-backs in the summer. So I'm not too sure about that. But as for January and the links with letting him go to Arsenal alone, I'm not really sure what would be in it for City. I don't think they could deal with losing another centre-back. I don't think they'd get anybody else in. They wouldn't be able to get in another foreign player because the squad quota is full in terms of foreign players. So I think it would be a decent move for Arsenal. I could see why they might be exploring it, but I'm not sure what's in it for City. What's in it for City, George? Yeah, I mean, that is the that, that would appear to be the question there because they are already short of centre-half. Centre so letting one go now doesn't make sense in that uh, in that regard. Again, there is a form of logic with Arsenal because of Mikel Arteta. He's a quality footballer. He would certainly fit into the way that Arsenal have traditionally played. However, is he is he the kind of defender that Arsenal need? He may be comfortable in comfortable in terms of playing and bringing the ball out, but isn't that a team that's kind of needing leadership and solidity, solidity and power? Um, I don't know. I'm not sure about that. 
think you're expressing the views of most people on hearing that news. John Stones and David Louise in the uh, centre of the Arsenal defence after the, the problems they've had in the last few years of a lack of steel and spine in that side. Very intriguing prospect indeed. Thank you, George, for your insight today. Hopefully I'll hear from you again soon. That was the Athletic Transfer Daily, squatting here on the Ornstein and Chapman podcast feed for the month. We're here every Monday to Friday. And if you haven't subscribed as yet, then you can do so now with a 40% discount by using the promo code UKPOD. Thanks again to George and the gang. I'm Jackie Oatley. Do check in with us again tomorrow when Adam Leventhal will be your host. And he'll be here on Thursday as well. Then it's Caroline Barker back in the chair on Friday. Bye for now.